Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, welcome, welcome to this session of WAM, this final session of this year's WAM, um, with Michelle de Kretzer, in which we will talk about her most recent novel, Scary Monsters, which is the book of the festival. If you've read it, uh, you'll know why it's the book of the festival, and if you haven't, you've got a treat in store. Um, before we start, could I please ask you to turn off your telephones, if you've got them with you, and they're on. And um, during the course of uh, our chat, I hope you might think of some questions for Michelle, because we will have, I don't know, 10 minutes of questions at the end. Um, my name is Jason Steger. I edit the books pages of The Age and The Herald. Um, and before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge the Wiradjuri people on whose land we are gathered and pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging and note that this is unceded land. Michelle is the author of six novels, um, for two of which, question, Questions of Travel and the Life to Come, she won our most significant literary prize, the Miles Franklin. She's also won the New South Wales Premier's Award for Fiction three times, for the previously mentioned novels and also for The Lost Dog. And um, Scary Monsters has been shortlisted for a big prize in America, the Kirkus Prize. Um, Michelle's other novels are first, her first, The Rose Grower, and The Hamilton Case. And she's also written a ghost story with a very un-ghost-like title of Springtime. Yeah. <laughs> um, her books are char characterised by a scrupulous prose, an inquiry, inquiring authorial mind, an intellectual rigour, a sharp eye on the, word, on the world, and a sharp eye on the word, I guess, uh, and the regular appearance of dogs. Um, in Scary Monsters, she does something different, though. She sets the reader a challenge from the, from the off. You see, the novel is in two parts, one set in France in the 1980s, the other in Australia of sometime in the future. But it's up to the reader to choose with which one to start. Please welcome Michelle de Kretzer. So, Michelle, in one section, a character called Lyle, this is the, the, the section set in the future, he says at one point, I'd arrived at one of those defining moments when a person has to choose between the future and the past. Um, that's the challenge you're setting the reader in a way. Yes. <laughs> yes, indeed. Um, Can you explain why the, why, the two, why the two parts of the one novel and and the conundrum that the reader faces? Yes. Um, so, and, and I, I must also apologise to anyone who was here at the panel I was on yesterday because you you got a, the condensed version of some of this. Um, and now you'll get the very long version. <laughs> um, so I guess that when I was um, thinking about this novel and, um, you know, thinking about the ideas within it, and I, I wanted to have this novel that had um, two migrant stories in it, so Lily is an Asian migrant to Australia, although when we meet her, she's living and working in France. And Lyle is also an Asian migrant to Australia, living and working in Melbourne. Um, and I was thinking about migration as something that turns your life upside down, sometimes in very good ways, <laughs> but always in challenging ones, yep. let us say, um, because... When you change countries, um, you change the way you understand the world. And at first, you don't understand your new world. You have this sense of, you know, the story has changed, but you don't know how to make sense of it. Um, and I, 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 so, so that was in, in the back of my mind, you know, um, the world turned upside down and not knowing how to make sense of the story. Also going on at this time were a few other things. So my partner is a French scholar, 
And at that time, uh, he was, well, he had been working on for a few years, but he was gathering momentum, a book on a group of French experimental writers called the Ulipo. Um, I don't know if you've heard of the Ulipo, but the best-known member of the group was Georges Perec, who had a big international hit with Life a User's Manual. And all the members of the Ulipo, they set themselves some kind of constraint. They play with form, basically. That's the aim of the group as writers. And they set themselves some kind of constraint, when, whether they're writing poetry, um, short stories, fiction, whatever. So Perec's um, book, Life User's Manual, which tells the stories of all the people living in an apartment block in Paris. He chose... So the number of flats in his apartment block is 64, which is the number of squares on a chessboard. So the way he chose whose story to tell next, he took the knight's move as his um, example. So he, if he started off in that corner, then he went there hmm. or up there or whatever. So, you know, in that way. So he was using the chessboard. And there's a lot of other stuff in there as well. It's a very, very complicated novel. Another of his books... He left out an E. He left out the letter E. Through the entire book. Through the entire book. And E in French, as in English, is the most common yeah. vowel. So it's quite a challenge. And the book is called um, La Disparition in French, which means disappearance or death. And in English, brilliantly translated as a void. And the novel tells of, you know, um, characters disappear in this novel mysteriously, and there's conflict, there's mysterious conflicts going on. But Perak lost both of his parents during the war. Uh, his father was, was a soldier who was killed, and his mother was murdered at Auschwitz. So it, the form of the novel reflects the meaning of the novel. So this was also in my mind have a, form, a novel where the form embodies the meaning of the novel. And then I also had in mind Alice Smith's wonderful novel, How to Be Both, which uh, I don't know if you remember that, Jason, but that, that has a double mm. narrative, mm. one historical, sort of 16th century, and one contemporary. Mm. And um, what her publishers did was to split the print run. So in half... If it just. In half the, half the print run, the historical stories first, in the other half, the contemporary one. So completely random as to what ends up in your local bookshop, and you go and pick a copy. And, of course, you could start in the middle, but most people start at the beginning. <laughs> and this is a novel about chance and about time. And so, again, Alice Smith, you know, wonderful, inventive, brilliantly inventive mind, um, had this form for her novel. So I came up with this idea of a flip format. Mm -hmm. You know, a novel that he would turn upside down um, and which, you know, the reader would ask themselves when they got halfway through uh, and flipped the novel, you know, this story is completely different. Whether you've started in the past or whether you've started in the future, it's going to radically shift when you get halfway yep. through. Um, so, so there was all of that. And then finally, I think, and, and you know, importantly, um, I was just in a mood to play and to do something different. Um, my sixth novel, and um, I just wanted to shake it up a bit. And it's also the first one that you've written in the first person, isn't it? Yes, it is. It is indeed. Yes. So, um, so the, both narratives are told in the first person. And this was, um, this was something I have always been wary of and stayed away from. Um, partly, I think, because, you know, my, before I became a, a, a writer, I used to work for Lonely Planet. And the last job I had there for about the last three years I was there, I was publishing a list of travel narratives. So I was just reading all the time, all the time, you know, manuscripts, which are basically I narratives. And I was so tired of them. I was so bored with them by the time I left. Um, and also because I think women's fiction is often just seen as autobiographical. So 
by using a first-person narrator, I seem to be playing into that mm. as well. Um, and then also because, you know, third-person narration is, is, is actually really beautiful and complex, and it allows you to go right close into the mind of a character, but also, you know, to pull out and draw back and see things from a wider perspective, and to do that with a range of characters. And it's a, it's a, it's a sort of beautiful technique. The you know? omniscient... Yeah. The author as, as God. As God. Yeah. And so there's a huge freedom. There's a huge freedom. Yeah. And this very mobile point of view. And I love, I love doing that. And I felt I could, I could do it. And there is always the danger when you feel you can do something technical that it becomes mechanistic. Hmm. And this is not a good thing for a, an artist of any kind. You know, one should... You, you should beware of what you can do well. But so, so then what were the challenges of the first person? Um, well, I, I suppose I, I was just self-conscious when I started mm. writing it. So I started with Lily because she is a young woman and an intellectual and I felt that her point of view would be easier for me to enter. And I wrote about... Um, you know, I would say two to 3,000 words and read it over and I thought, this is so... This is terrible. This is really so bad. Um, and I was quite depressed about it for a day or two and then I thought, but no, I'll just, you know, I'll just put it back in the third person. It's my safe place. I can do that. Um, so I did and I spent another few days, you know, rear it's not easy, you know, to transpose between narrative points of view. But I did it. Yeah. And then I read it over and I thought, this is terrible. <laughs> this is so bad. And then I remember that thing that I always forget, which is that first draft is always terrible. So it doesn't really matter. Um, so I thought, well, I might as well then be terrible in first person. Um, so I went back to that and I wrote, and very soon I could not imagine writing it in any, from any other perspective. So, so finding the voice was, it wasn't tricky because you it started with Lily. It was the because I started with Lily. Yeah. Um, and uh, I'm not Lily, but I had, um, Lily's living in France in um, 1980-81, and I'd lived in France in 1980-81. Um, so I gave her some of my experiences and many that I wished I'd had. <laughs> um, but, um, yeah, so, so it was, the voice was not hard, mm. really. It was that, um, just getting used to the first person, which, of course, the, the advantage of first person is it gives a very um, intimate perspective, mm. you know, and you can really sink into that character, and I hope readers can really sink in as well. And the other thing is that because it's limited, the reader can often see more than the character can. Yes, that's a, a useful technique. That's useful. Yeah. So, you know, sometimes the reader is reading a different story, a slightly different story to the one the character mm. is living and mm. understanding. Mm. Which is very much a, 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 a technique in, in some crime fiction, actually, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, of think. course. Yeah. Um, but but so, so writing it, writing it in the first person for the first time... Yeah. As a as a, the creator of these characters, yeah. does it actually change your relationship with the characters that you create? I mean, do you do, do you feel a, it, differently towards Lily and towards Lyle, who is the the, the narrator of the, the section that is in the future? No, because you know whether they're third person or first person, um, I'm I've made them. Mm. They are my creatures, Jason. Um, so that you've so got them under tight control. They I've don't, got them under tight control. You don't, they don't, they're not like these, you know, you hear of writers who say, oh, well, you know, he wouldn't let me, this character wouldn't let me go where I wanted to go and, and took me in a completely different No, direction. mine just do exactly what I wish them to do. <laughs> and I think what happens when writers say that is that actually... The writer is, is at that point so deeply in their material that they just sort of unconsciously 
um, know exactly where they're going. Mm -hmm. And it seems as if it's a power greater than they are, than mm -hmm. they have. But in fact, you know, it's just that, that that doesn't happen, I don't think, ever at the start of, an, of a novel. It's always when you're, you know, quite a long way in. Mm. And that's when people talk about mm. that experience. Mm. And so are your characters real for you then? Or are you, yeah, are you just, you Yeah, know? Um, except I can, I can, you know, I'm really aware of all the bits that I put together to make them. Yeah. So I hope they're really real for the reader and live on the page for the reader. And actually, people do ask me whether, you know, it is autobiographical. And I think I've decided to take that as a compliment, that it seems real to the yep. reader, you yep. know. Um, but the other thing is people often say, well, what happened to so-and-so to after the novel ended, you know? And I say, well, whatever you like, because, <laughs> you know, they belong to you as much as to me. But so they don't rattle around in your head after you've finished the novel, after, you know... No, no, no. So this is what I was saying yesterday, too, that I think, you know, um, once a novel is, is, is a book, hmm. you know, an object, I always have this moment of sadness when that first advance copy appears because, you know, it's, it's great. There's your book, your, you know, that thing that you sat with in front of a screen, you know, for, for so long, um, and someone was willing to take a punt on it and publish it. Mm. Um, at the same time, it's always a slightly sad moment for me because the novel now no longer belongs to me. Mm. It belongs to mm. everyone except me. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Um, because the reader recreates the novel, really. And, and every reader has a different response. Every reader has a different... So, have you had much feedback about um, the split? The, the split? The, the flip element of it? Um, well, the one reader very early on, who hadn't been out very long, um, said that she, she bought it, and then she was carrying it out to her car, and she opened it. And then she thought... She went back into the bookshop. She said, look, there's a mistake. This, <laughs> half of this novel is printed upside down. <laughs> Um, what I have noticed was, so this is my idea, was, you know, I will give the reader, reader this absolute freedom of choice as mm. to where to start, mm. you know, um, with the past, with the future, with the blossom, with the cherry. Um, and, but quite a lot of people say to me, where should I start? Mm. So I think, I wonder whether readers prefer to be directed rather than to have that freedom so, of choice. So, um... Where did you start, right, when you wrote it? Oh, with Lily, with Lily, with, because I... So you wrote it? I wrote it in chronological mm. order. Yeah, definitely. Mm. But that was because I felt, you know, I, I, it was easier for me to write mm. Lily. Of course, of course. But so when you, when you then went on to write Lyle, yeah. who is in an undetermined future Australia in, in Melbourne. In Spumante Court. Spumante Court, yeah. <laughs> Which, uh, the reason I had to set this half of the novel in Melbourne and not in Sydney was because in Sydney there is a Spumante Court. <laughs> and the moment I heard that, I learnt that, I thought, I want to put that in a novel. But then, so of course, I had to change the city so yeah. that these poor people <laughs> wouldn't think, yeah. I want to come back to that because mm -hmm. while, um, th while there are genuinely frightening and thought-provoking um, elements all the way through the book. Mm. There's also a lot of humour in it. Yes, I mean, And the first time I read it, I read it chronologically. Mm -hmm. And then I, I read it again and read it the future bit first. And the second time, I was much more aware of the humour. Oh, really? This, yeah, which I sort of suddenly thought... Well, you might, well, why didn't you think this the first time? It's really weird. It's really weird. Um, and I'm not quite sure why, why that was. Because it's, you know, it's objectively... Effort, you know. No, no, but it's a, it's a, it's, it must, I think it's a failing in me as a reader. Because it is, you know, objectively, it's, it's funny, it's satirical. It's, but know. it is also quite a dark novel. So oh, I think absolutely. that's why... Perhaps, you know... Well, I suspect I was paying more attention to the scary monsters, yeah. know, the, the, the um, ghastly things that are going, around, going on in the world, um, the, the experience 
experiences of Lily in France, you know, yeah. the, the racism, the experience of the people, um, the, the, um, the Algerians she met, um, the threatening uh, figure of Rinaldi, who is, he lives in the same block as her, but just in the, the, mm. the apartment downstairs, but he's there. You're never quite sure. And also you set it at the same time as in Britain, there is the Yorkshire Ripper. Yeah. Um, so there's this terrible sort of, well, not yeah. terrible, but there's this sort of atmosphere of... Yeah, yeah. Threat and fear, and um, so maybe that's why I, I think didn't so. pick up on I the on so. on the the, the, the humour in the first mm. part, and then the the humour in the second part, when Lyle is living with his wife Chanel um, and their children in in a, some years in the future, but the Australia you envisage is is pretty horrendous. Yes. Can you talk a bit about the, your vision? Of, <laughs> in, in there. So, yeah. um, Islam has been banned in, um, in this future Australia. Um, so anyone who's found, um, you know, anyone who's a practicing Muslim is um, deported. Uh, any, anyone with a migrant background going back two generations if they're convicted of a crime, is returned to their homeland. Um, and the elderly have become... Well, so, oh, there is also, you know, a sort of permanent um, fire zone um, and the temperatures are, you know, in summer, are sort of well over 50 degrees, so they're wearing factor 101 or something like <laughs> that. Um, and then the elderly... Um, have become numerous and therefore um, they are encouraged to have a joyful occasion and end their lives. It's, you know, co it's called the amendment, isn't it's it? It's called the amendment. So <clears throat> the existing um, assisted dying laws have been um, amended to make it, the process very easy. There are no more safeguards in there and... Um, and, and, you know, this solves all sorts of things like the housing crisis and um, boosts the economy because people inherit money and start spending mm. And, mm. and the economy is in a bad state because, you know, people are... There are sanctions against Australia. All of this, I should say, was also written under the uh, previous federal government um, <laughs> where I could just sort of see this stuff coming like Christmas. Um, and... The, the end of Lily ends with uh, what I think of as a, as a wonderfully, hopefully, event, which was the election of the, um, of, uh, the socialist government by, uh, under uh, Mitterrand in 1981, the first time France had had um, a left government, a socialist mm. government, since before the war. Mm. And it was just this huge thing. So I was there when that happened, and it was this... this Fabulous yeah, it must have been amazing. moment um, because you know there was Thatcher mm. in the UK, Reagan in um, the US, but there was this sort of you know wonderful you know the left had was not defeated, not in Europe at any rate, and it was this sort of great message of hope. So one of the things I was hoping was that people in Australia reading the book would think about you know how hopeful change could be enacted at the ballot box. <laughs> um, and I'm glad to say that that did happen um, in May. It's clearly your book has had a huge oh, it's impact. It's had a huge impact. <laughs> oh, look, you know, not, it wasn't the floods or the bushfires or anything like that. <laughs> no. But the, um, the, the, the vision of the future is, is also one where brands and consumerism oh, yeah, seems so. to be um, taking over. Yes, absolutely. So, you know, it's... Um, um, capital, it's a hyper-capitalist mm. society and um, consumerism is, you know, uh, encouraged. Lyle, Lyle and Chanel renovate their house every seven years because they think that that's the Australian way, you know. Um, what do they say? Household debt and home improvements are key Australian values. Yeah. 
Yeah, that was a good line. <laughs> it was a good line. line. <laughs> you wrote it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, and, and there are children, um, or you know, adults who have uh, whose names, proper names, are brand names. So there's Chanel, there's IKEA, there's Prada, Nike, and so on. Yeah. So, so you know, just the, the people's inner worlds are, have been invaded by the mm. language of advertising. Um, Lyle, when he wants to, see, you know, wants to pay someone a compliment, says he's as reliable as a Toyota. You know, it's. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Love a Toyota. But so you do, you do drop a hint, don't you, in the future as to the relationship between the two. I do, but I only see it as a as a possible relationship yeah. between the two, and it's up to the reader to find it, and then to decide whether there is a link between the two books. Because one of the other things I wanted to do was to, um, you know, ha have this idea of, you know, to, to, for the reader to ask themselves, what is a novel? What makes a novel? So when we think of a novel, I think usually we would think of a single mm -hmm. continuous narrative, um, that it also, also has continuity of style and tone and, you know, time and so on. Mm -hmm. um, and so I thought, well, how much of that can we strip away, you know? So here I've got something that has got two halves and they are pretty much exactly the same length because I didn't want to weigh, give one more weight than the other. And one's in the past, one's in the future. And they are quite different in tone because they're narrated by characters who are very different mm. people. So they're stylistically and tonally different. Um, and I want the reader to think about that. You know, is this still a novel? I mean, I absolutely think of it as a novel because it was conceived as a whole. But, you know, when we consume um, anything and cultural artifacts are no different, it we're always encouraged to just consume without thinking, mm -hmm. for consumption to be something smooth that goes mm. down smoothly. Mm. Yeah. And I thought, well, I'd like this to be a little bit of, of grit, you know, something you sort of have to chew on a bit. <laughs> um, you know, it's, um, it's not just a sort of, um, um, I don't know, a banana smoothie yeah. or something. It's interesting, um, you know, you've, you've published You've published this in, as, as a flip book. I mean, I noticed that um, Cormac McCarthy has got two novels coming out. Oh, look, he's just... Oh, that's he's, pathetic, isn't but it? He's, I mean, so. One's coming out in October, or towards the end of October, and one is coming out towards the end of November. Which is a sort of night. terrible. How, how dare he be so prolific, apart from, <laughs> apart from obviously taking that idea. Yeah, well, clearly. But again, it's, it's thinking about... Form. Form and, and what the novel is and, yeah. and, and unsettling readers. You know, do you... I, I'm, I'm, I think you read one, the way he's publishing it, you read one and then the next one. Um, oh, so they're sort of flip in... No, no, they're not... They're published separately. Right. They're not... But one is set ahead chronologically ahead of the, the first one. I oh, okay. My recollection from having a look at it before I okay. sent it to somebody to review, okay. uh, or okay. sent them to somebody to review. And I, um, sorry. sorry, no, go, you on. go on. Well, I was just gonna say, it's, it's, it's an interesting, and that will be unsettling in a, in a way for, for readers, I suspect. Yeah. I mean, unsettling in a good way. Yeah, because I it's, hope it's so. to, to hope provoke, so. it's, it's to it's, provoke that thought is and some interesting. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that you know, if you do read it one way and then another way, that it gives you two different novels, really. Absolutely. I mean, I found I found that, and it's, I found it very hard to articulate to myself quite why I found the experience of reading them the other way. Yeah. Why I found it so different, and hmm. I. I as I said, I, I seem to be more aware of the humour yeah. the second time yeah, yeah. because I was thinking of scary monsters yeah, yeah. and, and the, theme, the themes yeah. of the book, I suppose. Yeah. Um, it's interesting to me that at this moment, um, so many writers are playing with form, mm. so many novelists, if we just confine ourselves to the novels. So, I mean, if we, and if we just confine ourselves to Australia, 
you know, Sophie Cunningham's just published a book that blends, um, you know, historical novel, um, metafiction. Uh, this is this book, um, This Devastating Fever. Mm. Um, so, you know, playing with form. It's partly about Leonard Wolf, but it's also about someone who's writing about a novel about Leonard Wolf and, you know, all sorts of, um, sort of games going on there. Christus Cholkis had a book called Seven and a Half, which came out about a month after that, mm. after Scary Monsters, in which, again, there's a writer as a writer and the book he's writing forms part of the novel, I mm. think, so again, mm. sort of metafictional. Mm. Um, Michael Winkler's self-published novel, Grimish, oh, Grimish yeah. you know, is a commentary on the writing of the novel with footnotes and reviews and all mm. sorts of things. Mm. And I, so, you know, I wonder why... Um, it's, it's, it's interesting because it's sort of around 2022, which is exactly a century after the, um, you know, modernism's... Annas Mirabilis, where yeah, we jobs. had the publication of hmm. um, Ulysses and The hmm. Wasteland and Jacob's Room hmm. and the sort of big milestones of, of modernist literature. And, um, yeah, so I don't know whether writers are sort of have that in their minds. I think there's partly also a sense that the novel has always been seen as a, a form that has a, has a direct relation to the world and so many of us feel the world is broken at present. And so there's this interest in sort of exploded forms and mm. broken mm. forms. Or perhaps, it, I mean, the, the world is continually reinventing itself. That's and in, true. And in, and in the same way, the novel has historically continually reinvented. Yeah, if you go back to, I don't know, to the epistolary novel. Yeah, of, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, but the nevertheless, there is this, I think, this interest in exploded forms mm. that's sort of contemporary. Mm. And I, um, yeah, you know. So would you, um, when you write your next novel, yeah. I'm, I'm assuming you will be, <laughs> will you, <laughs> will you, will you play with the form again? Would oh, you I stick to, would I you I write in the first one, person? I think it would be just one novel. Yeah. Um, you're not going any any I bigger think than I two. I have done no, not bigger than two. <laughs> Three, four. <laughs> As a box set. Um, no, no. Uh, I think I personally have done what I can do. In mm. that, you know, I'm sort of interested in the idea of what you you know how much of the, the sort of connective tissue of a novel you can remove, and then mm. it's still a novel. Mm. Um, yeah. And I think I have explored that to my satisfaction for the moment. <laughs> how, was it, how, were you, how was your publisher about it? Um, I mean, it must have been, was it, it must have been a challenge for them. Um, no, it was, she was fine, so I... <laughs> <laughs> really? Uh, at the end. <laughs> at the end. <laughs> uh, no, um, so what happened was, you know, sort of about... Mm, three months before I was getting re going to submit it, I, um, I had lunch with her and I said, so, you know, I've got this idea for like a different form of my next novel. And she said, mm. And, um, you know, I said, yeah, so I'm just thinking about like a different way of publishing. And I saw the fear, the fear rise in her eyes. And she said, you want it in a box, do you? <laughs> <laughs> and I went, no, 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 no. It's just, you know, this flip format. And really, after that, because I didn't want it in a box, I could have said anything, you know, really. And she would have been so relieved. Because, you know, she's thinking of that novel. Who is it? Is it, I can know, is it B.S. Johnson? It's one of those writers who had a novel that was loose leaf in a box. Oh. And the reader just... So that's exactly what she was thinking. <laughs> Disaster, she was thinking. <laughs> um, I mean, look, I think she probably had to talk to marketing a little bit about it. But I, I'm very grateful to Alice Smith um, because I think the success of that book meant it smoothed the way mm. in all mm. markets for my mm. book. Mm. Um, the big discussions that had to happen were... Around the barcode, that all-important um, marketing 
um, tool, the barcode. This is how um, consumerism <laughs> affects art. So in Australia, um, they've got it on the spine. I think in the UK, they've got it on the inside um, flap. Maybe they've got it on the spine. But the big um, problem came in the US, where American barcodes are gigantic. They're like everything else in America. They're <laughs> huge and excessive. And um, my, uh, I'm published with a fairly small publisher there who are distributed by Penguin Random House. And Penguin Random House refused to put the barcode anywhere except on the back of the book, even though it was explained to them that there is no back of the book. Um, and so what happened there was a compromise where in half the print run, it's stuck on you know, one side. It's still a flip format, but it's on the cover of one side. So I'm assuming that the people who buy that edition will start will treat that as the back and start mm. at the other end. And in the rest of the... Yeah, mm. it's mm. the other way around. Mm. So, um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, it works. It works fabulously, I think. Um, I, I was thinking about... <clears throat> this morning, actually, somebody sent me a, a, a little joke on the... Um, and it's, uh, it's just somebody's given, given, given the, your, your relationship with France and the French element in here and the nature of the book. Somebody, he's, he said, I'm looking for a man with a French accent. His name is Philippe Philop. <laughs> okay. And I thought that... Flip-flop. <laughs> it, it worked. Um, so now, um, Joke. <laughs> I know it's a terrible joke, but I did, it just made me made yeah. me think of <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> the flip pick anyway. Um, so oh, I should also say, sorry, just no. to, um, on the format thing. Hmm. So I felt so sort of pleased and thrilled with myself for having come up with this format. Um, <laughs> I mean, quietly, modestly, thrilled. <laughs> And um, then, you know, it started, words started getting out. And few people said to me, with a kind of, you know, gotcha, but have you read Carol Shields' Unless? No, it's not Unless, it's something, something Happenstance. I said, no, I haven't read Carol Shields' Happenstance. I said, that's a flip book. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, well, I didn't know that. <laughs> um, then I, so, and I haven't read it. It's from about 1990, and mm. I can't, you know, sort of get hold of it easily. Mm. But I did the modern thing and Googled it, of mm. course. Um, so I feel I've read it. Mm. Um, and <laughs> I also consulted various Canadian friends at once who were very reassuring. So Carol Shields' um, uh, happenstance is, is indeed a flip format, but it consisted of two novellas. Um, that she initially published separately and then oh. put into a flip form. That's not, that's not the same thing. That's not the Definitely. same thing. Thank you, Jason. Definitely <laughs> not. She's not challenging the form, really. She's not challenging no. the form. No, she's publishing two novellas together. Well, yeah, I mean, one tells the story of a marriage from the husband's point of view, the other one's from the wife's, so it does turn your idea. But, but she did do them separately yeah. first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, Michelle, I mean, one of the... I want to ask you about dogs. Do because there's all there are always dogs in your books. Yes. Always. Yes. Poor Alan in, in Poor Alan. Alan is such a great name for a dog, <laughs> don't you think? I just love that. I want an Alan in my life. So I also want a Reg. A Reg. Reg would be good. Reg yeah, Reg would be fantastic. Um, now somebody somebody Edna. I know has got a dog called Gunther. Oh well, that's okay, but I prefer Alan or mm. Reg. Oh, okay. so, uh, <laughs> Dennis is another one I'm oh, I had a toying with. I had a cat called Dennis. That's fantastic. Yeah, yeah, it was fantastic. Um, but, and what's, you have a dog at the moment? No, I don't actually. Oh, we are I'm dogless. Shocked. Well, um, so we have this thing of, you know, adopting old rescue dogs because mm. they're the sort of remains in the remainder bin. And, um, <laughs> you know, and they're wonderful animals. Um, but they, they, 
they're old and they've usually not been, not, not always, but often not had the happiest of lives mm. and the best of sort of treatment. And so they then tend to die fairly, fairly soon yeah. and also to cost us a lot of money in vet yep. bills. But uh, we lost four dogs in six years and I cannot, I just cannot. Um, no. The last one was last year and I just, I need a break. Yeah. Got you know, right. we weep for them for, for months. And oh. I just can't... Well, you've had... Yeah, I mean, I had my dog... Um, the end had, times. Oh, uh, it's ghastly. It's ghastly. And I took him... Horrible. I had to take him to, uh, you know, for that final... Well, like... Um, yeah. In the book. And uh, I don't think I could do it again. And no, that well, that's the Five thing. years ago. It's so hard. Mm. I, so hard. The vet actually said to us that she had to, um, at one stage, take sort of six months off work from, you know... Oh, yeah. Because she just couldn't mm. face that... Yeah. And, you know, yet it's, the, it's a gentle death. It's a... You know, I think these dogs have had bad starts, but we give them good ends. And isn't that the way to go? Yeah, isn't yeah. that what it, we all hope for ourselves? Of course. A gentle um. end. And yet for those witnessing it... Oh, I'll uh, cry in a minute. So let's no, no, it's... it's um, oh, sorry. It's, uh, yeah, it's dreadful. I mean, I do... <coughs> what Alan goes off with a, in a happy... Mm. And, yes, it, th they do. They, oh, the vet, we're getting the treats here, lovely. And then, I know, oh, dear. I know. Anyway, um, um, before I start weeping yes. copiously, <laughs> wh why, why do dogs always figure in your books? I mean, e in, even in the ghost... In springtime, there's a dog. yes. Um, a, a crucial role mm. played by a dog, two dogs, in fact. Um, well, because all my characters are really invented and all my dogs are drawn from life. <laughs> so, <laughs> I have, so all my, my dogs have made it into my yeah. books, yes. which I'm pleased about. It's a way of remembering them. Yes. Um, and you dedicated, I think... Um, the Lost Dog the to lost my dog. To Oliver. Was no, to Gus, Gus, to Gus, who was Sorry. the lost who got lost. Yeah. So, you know, and was found again happily. Yes. But I won't say what happens to the dog in the book. You need to read that to find out. <laughs> <laughs> um, I wanted to, to ask you, because you, you said it's not um, about... You, you give Lily um, you, to an extent a degree of your experience in France. But, I mean, with the first-person narrative mm. voice, that encourages people to see... Does it not encourage readers to sure, see... of course. ..to see of course. it as autobiographical? Of course, to a but I, I really uh, would say that it is no more autobiographical or less than mm. the Lyle section. Mm. So when I say I give Lily my experiences, she's teaching English in a French high school, which I did... Um, uh, but, you know, it's all the sort of political and historical events yeah. that happened at that period. So, of course, I witnessed those as well. Mm. And that's what I give, you know, what Lily and I have in common. Mm. Um, but, you know, I didn't live in a flat with a creepy neighbour. Um, I, I, um, I didn't do various other things that Lily does. <laughs> and, um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and um, I didn't have the friends. You know, the friends are all invented. Mm. Mm. Um, when um, uh, I mean, I said that um, humor, the humor of particularly the first section, was something that I'd not. I mean, I was aware of it, but I perhaps, I, as I said, I was concentrating more on the themes mm. of the book, but. Can you tell me about writing the humour into this book, which is, as you say, a very dark... It is a dark book. I mean, what... Well, I guess... How did, how did you approach... How did you approach this? Well, one of the things with the Lyle section was that... You know, so Lyle... Lyle wants, above all, to be bland and to fit in... To, mm. to, to fit in. So there is a challenge to writing a bland character... Um, that the reader, but, but to still engage the reader's interest. Mm. So, um, because, you know, really, character is always the, um, at the heart of, of um, 
story, I think. I mean, if you have a character whom the reader is interested in, they don't have to like the character, but they have to be interested enough to keep mm -hmm. turning the page. So one way of just trying to um, liven up the Lyle section was to make it both horrible and funny. Mm. You know, those mm. two things. Mm. Um, so at times, I hope the reader is not quite sure, you know, should I be laughing? Should I be just aghast at what's mm. going mm. on here? Um, so that's uh, another way of unsettling the reader. It's another way of unsettling the yeah. reader. Um, and similarly, in the, in the lily section, I suppose, you know, there's... I mean, there are a lot of... If you start with the lily section, I think a woman is murdered in the second paragraph, or there's a reference to a woman who's been thrown down a well by mm. fascists mm. in the second paragraph, and it goes right through, and there are a lot of dead women. Um, so, you know, I need something to, to sort of balance that out. Mm. Mm. And, it, well, it, um, you certainly do balance it out. Yeah. It's... Um, <laughs> Um, now, we will turn to your questions in a minute, so do please um, think, think up some questions. And, uh, and I wondered, um, before we turn to you, what you will be doing next. Have you got some... Are you thinking... Oh, I'm, I have glimmerings and shimmerings, but I, um, I, ha I, I, have a, I have a maybe beginning and I have a maybe end which is very important to me. I need you, that end. You need the end when you... When yeah. I begin. Mm. I once started a novel without an end. That was my second novel. And um, I wrote 20,000 words, and, well, they're still sitting on my computer somewhere. Really? God. Mm. So you always know where you're heading, but you just mm. don't quite know how to get there. Exactly. Yeah, which is yeah. the challenge. That's the challenge. So, you know, you have the beginning, you have the end, and there's the difficult middle bit. <laughs> so do, you, do, you begin, do you begin with the characters? Do you begin with the characters? Or, you know, the, I mean, with this book, um, did you begin with the, the notion of scary monsters? The, the, or did you... Did it's a sort of stew, you know. There's the, there's the idea of you know, the world turned upside down, mm. so my, writing about migration, but in unexpected ways. I mean, the, the, um, the migrant family in the second half are basically not terribly nice people, mm. you know. Um, you can feel sorry for them because they've got... Th you know, they've really sort of um, interpreted Australia in a particular way, mm. and you can understand where that comes from. Yes. But they're still behaving often in ways that are deeply un unpleasant, mm. I think. Mm. Um, so I wanted to, you know, sort of showing... Um, that, you know, there, there can be a kind of sanctification of migrant characters in, in Australian fiction written by non-migrants. Non non um, and I understand where that comes from, that it comes from a wish for respect but it can shade into sentimentality very easily, mm. I think. Um, and I think, you know, the demonisation of migrant figures is obviously a, a horrible thing, um, but I find that sort of sentimentalisation unnerving as well. I think because they're both forms of symbolic violence, mm -hmm. you know, that don't see the, the other as sort of fully human, and the right to to behave in behave badly to do bad things is also you know a human right really mm. Mm. Um, you know people are complex people are faceted people are very seldom you know all bad um, or all good and that's what I was trying to show how did we get onto that forgotten anyway people are flawed aren't they really people I mean are flawed. that's I've always thought that's I love novels where the characters are flawed. Yeah, um, absolutely. And let's face it, most people are, aren't they? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, um, perhaps we could... Uh, oh, we've got ten minutes or so. Um, there are mics running around. If you have a question, please put up your hand. There's one down here. Yeah. Um, yes, um, these are two combined questions. Um, I... 
started the novel with Lyle. And I was speaking to someone yesterday who started it with Lily. Now, I really connected with the character of Lyle. I I loved all of the book, obviously. I loved that section. And she turned around and said, oh, I loved Lily. I thought that was great. (laughs) So my first question is, anecdotally, what are people most starting with, do you find? And can you kind of classify them? Like, can you look at somebody and go, oh, she's going to start with Lyle. (laughs) (laughs) She's going to start with Lily. And my second question is, coming from that, do you find that people say things like if they started with Lyle, they prefer that section? And is oh, there a right. link? What a good question. Um, I, as to whether I can classify people from looking at them, no, I can't. <laughs> um, you know, the novel was published in the spring last year, October, and I think a lot of people started with The Blossom because it was, you know, springtime. Um, and just to think, I should uh, pay the tribute to the... To the um, designer, Sandy Carl, who, you know, obviously fruit precedes blossom, we also we think of that, but she put the, blo- she put the fruit on the, sec- on the section in the past and the blossom on the future. So, uh, I mean, yeah, so, you know, kind of just playing with that idea uh, again. Um, and, no, I, I, well, I don't know, I mean, Sometimes people, I think people who have travelled when they were young um, say they like Lily because they remember that, sort of those long train journeys in Europe and, you know, that sort of first confrontation with European, the European world. Um, I think it really depends on the reader. Really, really depends on the reader. So, yeah. Thank you. Oh, thank you, Michelle. Um, I really love um, questions of travel, and now I'm reading Lily's story. Thank you. And um, I'm thinking about this playing with form, and I'm thinking about your writing at the level of the sentence, and it seems to me that there's a sort of a rhythm in your sentences, there's a symmetry in the sentences. They almost seem, I haven't counted the number of syllables, but they're, they're quite... They feel symmetrical, and then every so often there'll be a longer one at the end of the paragraph, and it seems quite textured and patterned, and I just wonder, is this innate, or...? I love you. (laughs) Thank you you so much. Someone who notices the sentences. Uh, You must be a writer. Are you a writer? writer. Yeah, of course. Of course. Um, Thank you for that. I I really um, love sentences, and I love writers who honour the sentence um, and I pay a lot of attention to my sentences and I think there can be all sorts of fantastic, I, I don't think there's any one rule for sentences, you know, you can have short sentences, long ones, I like, I think it's good to mix them up. I always love, uh, you know, someone like Pat, Patrick White who writes fabulous sentences, you know, he he will often have a sort of, um, you know, an Australian vernacular word next to a very sort of Latinate word, you know, that kind of contrast. Um, I, um, one of my things is that I will always end a book or a narrative or, you know, half a book with a, a, a monosyllable because a monosyllable, and often, often also at the end of a section in a book, because what that does, a monosyllable, in English has, um, you know, because of the rhythms of English, it's very, it can be very punchy, and a monosyllable at the end, it has a kind of, it shoots, it shoots the bolt home, you know, it kind of locks the sentence into place. You can check, he doesn't believe me, obviously. <laughs> But it is true. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I mean, I do really pay attention to, to sentences because I think that, you know, really, um, what is a novel? A novel is a collection of sentences. And I, I, I really believe this too. You see, I'm getting excited talking about sentences. Um, that if you take care of the sentences, all sorts of other things take care of themselves. So you trim away the fat from sentences, 
and you trim away unnecessary sentences, and it gives a wonderful swiftness and lightness to your prose. Okay? So this is something, you know, when I'm um, going through um, a manuscript for another writer, I will often be just putting dotted, a dotted line underneath words and sentences and saying, is this necessary? Yes. Just, is this necessary? So I'll give you like a very um, common example of two things. In dialogue, where people have um, the character saying something like, uh, you know, so, you know, where, where, is, where is Jason? Answer, he is on the stage. No one speaks like that. They say, where's Jason? He's on the stage, mm -hmm. okay? In dialogue, unless you're doing it for emphasis, he is on the stage, you use the contractions. It speeds things up, okay? Another thing, someone will say, you know, there's a dinner party scene or something. And Jason, I'm using you as my example. That's all um, right. I'm honoured. <laughs> Jason got up and left the room. Obviously, Jason got up. Yeah. If he left the room. Yeah. Say, Jason left the room. I, you've just taken out an unnecessary bit of a sentence. So that's swiftness. That so that's swiftness. Bounce, bounce, bounce. Go. Yeah, so you want your narrative. This doesn't preclude depth of thought, okay? But it just, it aerates your prose. It really does. So, um, you know, I, I think that's really something to, um, to watch out for. And I'm sure, I dare never look at anything I've written because I'm sure there'll be unnecessary things in there. But at beginnings, um, so links between paragraphs, like the start of a new paragraph is often where a writer will put in an unnecessary sentence. Why? Because she's explaining to herself the connection between the two paragraphs. Take it out. Take out that first sentence in the paragraph. Trust your readers, they will do the leap. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, you can often delete the last paragraph of your book. You can often delete the first. So, yeah. It's <laughs> that's really, okay. that's really interesting. That's, <laughs> that was a great question. Yeah, thank <laughs> you so much. Um, any more great questions out there? <laughs> Sorry, I don't know that it's a great one. Um, it, I'm sure. But you referred to your book as an object, and it's not very often that you hear or that I hear uh, a writer think about or talk about the, being conscious that their book is an object um, and not just a story. And so I was curious as to um, yeah, whether the idea of uh, that you're creating an object um, plays into uh, yourself as an artist. Um, but also, um, just the, because I'm curious as well, um, the idea of giving the, the reader the choice to, of where to start, um, how did you solve that digitally? Publishing the, the oh, what a good question. So I'll answer the second question first. Um, basically, my publishers just copied what Alice Smith's publishers did, which, so thank you, goddess Ali. Um, <laughs> um, they say something like, um, you know, this book was designed to be read in either order. You know, who decides? I think the question was, who decides which order a story is, is to be read? You do. This book was designed to give the reader the freedom to start wherever. So, you know, although it's in digital, digital form, you may choose to start in halfway through. So that's what they did, basically, and with the audio book as well. Mm. There's a, someone reads the, that little thing at the mm. start of it. Mm. Um, yes, I had never even thought of that, but, you know, that's what... Um, I think they just started with Lily, you know, as being chronologically earlier. Um, so, yeah. Um, and as to the first question, do I, I don't think of it as, as writing and as, as being an object. But, you know, when you start writing a novel, everything is possible. Everything is possible. 
And then the further you go, you know, you get your first draft, you do a second, a third, a fourth, a fifth, whatever. And with each run, the possibilities close down, okay? Um, you're refining and refining and refining that first draft. And then it's finished. It goes off to, you know, it goes off, it gets accepted for publication. But you still have input into it. You know, you work with an editor, and it comes back to you for proofreading. It usually comes back twice for proofreading. Um, so right up until that second proofread, your publishers might not like it, but you can. The purpose of writers is to make the lives of publishers difficult. <laughs> so, you know, I think it's fine to make changes at that last stage if you have, you know, can, can justify it. Um, so it's still a living, a living thing because you can change. It, it, you know, if it's alive, it's subject to change. Any living thing is subject to change. Once it is made into a book, it's no longer alive. You know, it is something out in the world. Well, it's no longer alive for me. I hope it is alive for the reader. Mm -hmm. Because, every, you know, as I said, I do think readers, you know, sort of rewrite the book in reading. Um, I do, I think, you know. I, I have an image of what characters look like and, you know, a novel comes alive for me in my head when I'm reading. Um, but... It, for me, it is now just something that I, I have no further connection to. Uh, in, I mean, of course, I, feel, I want everyone to love it, naturally, naturally. But, um, but that's just sort of vanity. It's not, um, it's not um, aesthetic necessity. Or some, you know, it's yeah, it's gone. It's gone from out into the world. Do you do you think about it? I mean, now that it's it's out, and presumably there are a few copies at your place on your bookshelf. Do I think about it? Do you do you think about it, or is that it? It's it's literally gone. You've yeah, done it's it, gone. and yeah, it's gone. Except on occasions. Yeah, yeah, occasions like this, then we, when you have to. Have yeah, to I've forgotten think. everything about this book. By the way, I was yeah. picking it up. No, but if you, if if we were starting, you know, you you wouldn't remember. I don't know. Let's say if we went back and were talking about the rose grower, for example. No, no, I mean sort of vaguely, but I remember yeah. once, you know, with questions of travel, um, mm. when it was still my, mo you know, my yep. most recent book. Someone talk, asked me a question about a, a character who's a, an artist, a painter in the book. And I just said, is there an artist? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a big book, and he's a sort of secondary character. But, you know, I just yeah. I completely blanked that <laughs> Another question. Yes, there's a question over there. Mm -hmm. Well, as you don't remember anything about the book, Michelle. <laughs> no, I just wanted to comment or ask about the risk-taking. Yeah. Because both Lyle and Lily take risks and whether that was something that evolved as you wrote them. Because the, the, the risk, and this is, I don't want to give spoilers, but the risk that Lyle takes is a huge yeah. one. And so he's, that, I think, makes him very not bland yeah. when, when he does what he does. Um, so is that something that was in the characters from the beginning or just that, that came? Uh, what, how, I mean, I hadn't thought of it that way. And so that's one of the joys of, you know, hearing mm. from readers that you point out things that I have, wasn't really sort of aware of. Maybe because I was thinking of this as a rather risky enterprise um, <laughs> that made its way unconsciously into the two um, narratives. Thank you. Okay, we've got one more question, perhaps. We've probably got time for one. No? Oh, down the front here. Um, I, I haven't read your first two novels, so I don't know if I... Is this your first foray into dystopian futures? And did you like it? <laughs> did I like it? Um, thank you. It is my first foray into it, and um, I think... Any serious um, sort of speculative fiction or science fiction readers would probably be terribly disappointed because um, it doesn't have lots of um, whiz-bang 
technology in it. And I did that very deliberately because I think that when there is, you know, a lot of very um, uh, technology that's very different from what we know, even if it has grown out of our world, you know, a technology that's already present but not in that form, I think if it's too different, um, readers can, however sort of... Um, scary it is or, or unpleasant, readers can sort of disconnect from that and say, well, that's not my world. You know, th yes, that's something that might happen in the future. So I wanted this to be really quite close to our world because I really did see it as important to try and not go, not end up in that place in Australia. You know, maybe we will. Um, but, uh, so for that reason, I, um, you know, kept it relatively close to our, uh, our, our reality. Um, I don't think I will do it again. I think I'm someone probably basically who is very interested in, in history. Mm. And the kind of the, so history as the past, but also history as a sort of, um, if we think of the, you know, big contemporary events and the kind of the collision of the individual with history, you know, the self and the world, what happens when those two things come up against each other. So I'm interested in the world in reality, I suppose, um, and, and sort of love that, really. So, um, yeah, I, I think I no probably more. won't go there again. No more dystopians. No more dystopians, <laughs> no. Thank you for well. that. And can I just ask you all to please thank Jason because it oh. does mean an awful lot of work doing one of these interviews. He makes it look no, easy. No, 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 no. no but no, no, um, no, no, let's no. have a round for Jason. Which is, that's completely the wrong way around. <laughs> I just I think we nacho. should thank Michelle for <laughs> All her novels and this one, which you really should read if you haven't read it. And you know, please join me. You're very naughty. Thank you. <laughs> and um, Michelle will, of course, be signing copies of Scary Monsters.